Hello and welcome to the Prigya Arora show where we discuss law and entrepreneurship with people who have been there and done that. My name is Prigya Arora, founder of PA Legal where we help creators and innovators protect their intellectual property and our guest for today is Stephen Blake, the director of Matter IP. Welcome Stephen on the show. Thank you very much Prigya. Thank you. So, Steve, just uh, let's just start out with something fun and interesting. What is one thing in life you cannot live without? Well, you know, I'm always really rubbish at these things. I never can pick any one thing. But I think the first thing, I'll do the first thing that came to mind. The first thing that came to mind was uh, my dog, who is, uh, don't tell my family I said that, but he's down here uh, sleeping. Uh, so it's my dog, definitely my dog. I think about all the smiles and laughs that I have now that I didn't have before he was here. So that makes me think it's probably him. I know uh, because I also own two pets and it's it's such a bliss to have pets, but my dogs are not as calm as yours. If they are here, I can't <laughs> do anything. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope he doesn't try to disrupt the interview too much. But um, at the minute, he's quiet uh, and everything's good. But uh, but yeah, usually he's pretty good. So we'll see. Wow, awesome! I have a German Shepherd, so he's never quiet. He's always agitated. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, wow. So, uh, Steve, can you tell us something about your journey and how did you reach the where you are today? Uh, yeah, it's quite a long one, actually. I came to intellectual property pretty late into my early 30s. Um, before that, it was sort of engineering. I spent some time in the Air Force, the Royal Air Force, which was great. Um, and then I left the Royal Air Force, and that was when I went to university. So I was actually um, late going to university as well. I started at university at 27 um, and then stayed for six years in total. And it was after that that I sort of decided to come into intellectual property as a patent attorney, uh, starting with a firm near to where my university degree was, uh, Potter Clarkson, a great firm who were kind enough to give me um, a sort of an, an internship type thing. Um, and then I managed to get a, a position with them afterwards. It was actually um, my now business partner, Douglas Rankin, um, he was the one that suggested intellectual property uh, to me and patent attorney to me. And it was, uh, we were on the golf course, not on the golf course, we were on the driving range at the time, uh, just hitting balls. And he said that he was thinking about that. And from there, it just sort of spiraled. And we're obviously both now been in it for about 15 years. Wow. This is even uh, mainly this podcast is so that people can learn from our journeys and the, uh, yeah. the guest, whoever is here. So I have two questions uh, fr questions from whatever you answered to the, uh, right now. So first is like, uh, I know people think it's too late to ch uh, change careers. So mm -hmm. what is your take on that? Because I believe it's never too late. The moment you realize that you want to start something, you should do it. So what's your take in that? And what were the challenges you faced while switching uh, to the career? Yeah, I, I would agree with you. It's never too late. Definitely yeah. never too late. In fact, I would argue that starting Matter IP what was almost a year ago now, was actually another change of career, even though it's sort of in the same area. Running a business is completely different <laughs> to being a, a partner in a, in a law firm. So it's sort of, there's a whole new set of challenges and some of the same challenges too. Um, but I, I would say, you know, the problems, personally, I never felt them. Uh, I, just, I just have um, always just done it. Um, and I'm a believer that that's the hardest step, that, that first step. If you can make that first step, then everything else kind of happens. But you've got to be comfortable with learning as you go and therefore making a few mistakes, right? Um, oh, wow. if, you, if you sit around and you wait for everything to be just right before you make the move, then you'd be waiting probably forever. Um, yeah. 
awesome so i always tell people that the first step like if we want to learn swimming the first step is just to <laughs> dive into the pool and i think it is the hardest step to take after that we eventually learn whatever we want to <laughs> absolutely you just got to do it you just got to do it and if you do it then you'll learn you might mistakes but you'll learn and you'll get better that's the only way uh, yeah. to get get better right um so so yeah I, that would be what i would say just just do it it definitely never is too late um and especially in the modern world it's completely different now yeah right you gone are the days when you stayed in a single career you know a single job or a single sort of position for all of your career those things just don't seem to happen as frequently anymore yeah so the world is much more open to it um, yeah. as well i think now so so yeah just dive in I think with technology, like you said, with technological advancements and everything, it's easier to connect with people, easier to probably build businesses. Like, it's the easiest since forever. Like, this is the easiest time to do that. <laughs> definitely, definitely. And and this medium that we're talking over now has has helped a huge amount. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's changed the landscape massively uh, because, well, obviously with Without it, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation uh, for a start. Yeah. Uh, and so you wouldn't be able to have conversations with many other people around the world. Social media gets derided quite a bit um, for the negatives that it brings. But one positive is that you can always find your tribe. Um, no matter where they are around the world, you can always find, you can build communities now in a much more dispersed way. And that, that really helps when you're starting a new business, definitely. Awesome. I think building communities is next superpower that we have. Like we have our yeah. own tribe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're, they're, you just got to find them, right? And you could never find them before because geography was in the way. Yeah. But now geography is not in the way anymore. Awesome. So now, Steve, uh, let us know how did you think about starting Matter IP? What was your idea behind it? Because you were doing well as a partner in a law firm. Then, uh, how did you yeah. decide that you want to enter into business side of law? Like you want to build up your own practice and your own firm? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it was really that many of my clients when I was working in a law firm were sort of SME sized. Yeah. And I really enjoyed working with those clients. And I think that there's a part about those larger law firms that sometimes I think the most efficient way that larger law firms can operate is with other large organizations and that's and so often they're set up to sort of to deal with that not that they can't service smaller uh, mm -hmm. clients too but there's just I, I and Douglas we both together sort of sensed that there was something about the startup and SME market where they just wanted something a bit different um, and we felt that there was an opportunity for us to provide that, uh, help them get a different sort of IP support, um, not just external advisors at the end of sort of um, arm's length relationships, but somebody that comes closer to their business and is able to advise in a much more rounded way. Now, there are people out there that, that do that as well as Matter. Matter is not the only one. Um, <clears throat> But I guess when we looked at it, we sort of thought, well, okay, large tech businesses, they all have an in-house head of IP. Yeah. And they do that for a reason, for a good reason, um, because those people can help manage the relationships with patent trademark attorneys and yeah. sort of other external advisors. They can also um, manage the strategy internally, make sure risks are properly mitigated, all of these things. But then when you come down to smaller businesses like startups and SMEs, they don't have that in-house expertise. So there can, in some relationships, be a big knowledge gap between the SME over here and, I mean, let's say patent attorney, trademark attorney, whatever it is over here. And there's quite a big deficit in, in knowledge there, which makes it harder for the SME to interact um, in that relationship. So... What matters all about and what we wanted to do was provide that bridge in between 
um, and that support that is a bit closer to the business really really they're in-house counsel mm -hmm. but not without having to hire someone right maybe in-house counsel of a number of firms <laughs> well that's it yeah that is exactly it um, and so our, our service is all about that for businesses that cannot justify hiring a full-time in-house counsel we fill that role for them in a way that uh, makes sense for their business budget wise amount of time wise and resource wise that makes sense for their business it's uh, that's what it's all about and really you know I always think well SMEs I think all around the world for every economy they really form the backbone yeah but in in this context, in the legal services context, I think they get the worst deal. You know, they they don't get to drive large discounts yeah. um, with law firms because they don't have volume of work. Yeah. And they often are not able to access the same level of service just because their needs are different um, to what the law firm can provide. So we wanted to try and right that wrong a bit. Yeah, and I agree with you so much. Like I know specifically this SME sector and law, uh, like people, small businesses, they require handholding because they are unaware yeah. about, about their rights, unaware about the procedure of registrations and things like that. So they need handholding, they need education. I think half of our work is about educating people and other half is actually doing the work. Yeah. And the the other thing is that this this hand holding, it depends on your business models. One of the other things we, we never do is charge by the hour. So yeah. And if your if your business model is about charging by the hour, it makes it much more difficult for you to be able to do that hand holding because it's you can't charge Good. for that. Um, and so it's time that's kind of dead within your system. But the way that we charge is on fixed fees yeah and we are that we think that aligns us better yeah. with outcomes so we, we try to sell client outcomes yeah. and if you can do that then the outcome part of that handholding it gets the client to the outcome that they're yeah. that they're buying so it's much easier to to justify I um, know. So, yeah I know this uh, fixed fee is absolutely amazing and mo mostly people who, who work with, you know, our kind of people, our kind of lawyers, they are getting that, uh, moving towards fixed fee and it's absolutely important because it brings no surprises to the client. At least client knows whatever he, he has to pay in advance. Absolutely. That certainty over cost. Yeah. It's really important, um, but it goes it goes deeper with deeper even than that. Um, it's it's not um, that firms that are charging by the hour. It's not that they would ever sort of prolong a job to get yes. more money, but that would be the outcome. So if you end up with somebody that is slower, yeah, then pay more for that than you would pay for somebody that is faster. And there's always that balance between quality. Yeah. and speed and then different personalities um, within a single firm even um, and so every client experience is completely different on, yeah. on pricing because you're paying for an input not an output it just doesn't make sense so it's, it's, it's certainty yes but it, it's much more um, than that it kind of aligns it's about alignment with what the Perfect. client wants to achieve right um, I posted on LinkedIn a while ago, there was a great story about a golf pro that I got from uh, Jonathan Stark's podcast, Ditching Hourly. I don't know if you listen to it, but it's really, really good. Um, <laughs> I will, definitely. <laughs> it is, it's really, really good. But it's, um, so on, on there, he tells a story, or one of his guests, I forget the guy's name now, but tells a story about, he was um, with a golf pro. So he's at the golf course getting lessons from a golf pro and the golf pro is kind of sat there and he's watching him hit the ball and he hits the ball and he kind of says, well, okay, you need to do this a bit. And he hits the ball again and he says, okay, try and do that. And he hits the ball again. And he's paying the guy by the hour. And they start to get a conversation going that is, um, you know, what do you do? And then the, the, the guy who's, who's paying for the golf lesson sort of says, well, 
you know, the sort of thing I do and how I charge is like this. So let's take an example, he says to the golf pro. If I gave you, if I pay you half your hourly rate now, but I promise to give you $5,000, this was going back a time. If I get to a single figure handicap, then how would you do that? Would you want to do that? And the first thing the golf pro does is he looks at the guy and sort of thinks, well, is this guy capable of getting a single figure handicap? He decides that he is and he says, well, okay, if that's what we're going to do, <clears throat> then I need you to come in three times a week. We're going to walk around the course together. I'm going to teach you how to play the course. And I'm going to not only teach you how to hit a ball, but I'm going to teach you how to play the whole game. And then you will reach your goal and I will get my my money. And the difference between those two stories is that in the one, when you're paying by the hour, um, the, the golf pro's outcome is not dependent on you getting your outcome, right? Mm -hmm. As soon as you, you're paying based on you achieving what you want to, to achieve, then the two people are aligned yeah. and skinning the game on both sides. And so, yeah, it's definitely about certainty, but I think it goes a bit deeper than that. Certainly for us, it's much more about being aligned with your client's outcomes. Yeah, it's about, I think it's about being aligned with the client's outcomes and also generating value for them because most of the time, uh, probably lawyers, they don't think about the value they think about uh, or clients, then they, they are not able to assess that what value this lawyer will bring on the table. And what they get into is into numbers. Is this lawyer charging more? Is this lawyer charging less? But I think lawyers have to be analyzed in terms of what value they'll bring on the table instead of how many hours they'll be spending on the work. Definitely. If you ask the client, what, <laughs> what, what is it you want to, to buy? They, none of them would say, well, an hour of a lawyer's time. That's not what they want. That's, I mean, you know, what they want is an outcome that might be, you know, linked to that time input, but they want to buy an output. And that's what we should be selling as a, as a sector. And this is not just IP. I mean, this is right across the, the legal Definitely. sector. I think... <laughs> I think all of the lawyers in different parts of the world are moving towards fixed fee because I keep seeing people from Europe talking about it, people from India talking about it, people from Australia, from US, everybody's talking. I think US is a bit slow, but rest of the world is <laughs> talking about it. Yeah. I think actually, I mean, in, in my experience talking to, to IP professionals and patent attorneys, in the US I think there's a lot of fixed fee work yeah yeah goes on in the US and actually in the UK too but you just don't hear about it um yes. so much it, it's so you know it's quite common for larger tech businesses yeah to say well this is the way that we want you to price um and if you want all of this work <laughs> then you have to price like that and it's fixed fee they're not willing to accept. It's the smaller guys. Again, it's the SMEs that um, can't drive that deal um, and they have to pay uh, the hourly rates. But a lot of the work in IP is being done on a fixed fee. I know. <laughs> And sometimes the clients also, they get excited and they get surprised. Oh my God, are you quoting fixed fee? We have been working with hourly fees since ages. <laughs> yeah, but fixed fee is the only way to go. But I think there's quite a lot. It'll be hard for quite a lot of law firms yeah. to make that switch. And it'll only be if clients start to demand it um, because a lot of um, the... A lot of the internal mechanism of a law firm is built around this uh, process of recording time. And, and that's the other crazy thing, right, <laughs> is that actually it's, it's, less, it's less efficient for the firm as well. So yeah. it's a bad idea for them. You've got to go through all the process of recording time, of um, then writing time off, if that's what you, I know. you to do uh, so every invoice has to be checked and signed off before it can go out and there's a huge amount of admin I mean is there anything more pointless than recording time knowing that it's going to be written off but, but that's what happens you know that's what has to happen so um yeah we think fixed fee is a much smarter way to go for us as well on so we don't have any 
invo invoicing is automatic um, because because it's it's just we know what the price is everybody knows what the price is so you just click a button add the fee and who needs to check it nobody needs to check it because yeah. it's sort of uh, yeah because it's all, all known already awesome i think and it, it's an important aspect and if people are not moving towards it they're losing something and i i think newer clients will demand that and newer people who are entering into legal area and starting out with their businesses are now moving towards fixed fee because yeah. as you said they don't want to like personally speaking i don't want to take the pain of recording the number of hours uh, at what time i'm sitting on my laptop I, at what time i am getting up and i don't want to do that for my for my employees and colleagues as well i want people to live with freedom so what is freedom for them that they are given a the work they do it religiously with all good quality and produce a quality work and valuable work to the client so i don't mind if they spend less time doing it more time doing it but at least they're providing quality work absolutely and there's this there's this myth um in the in the legal sector that you can't monitor performance without sort of um without understanding how many hours someone's putting in yeah. but every other job manages to monitor performance without putting knowing how many hours everyone's spending every six minutes that everyone is spending on a on a particular thing so it's it's just it's not true that you can't sort of you know make sure that people are performing if you don't have an hours sort of number for them it's just not true um and so so yeah like you it's the last thing um that we want in our business the last thing Awesome. So now let's move towards IP and uh, have some discussion around IP too. So what do yeah. you think are general, uh, we discussed that, uh, you know, small uh, SMEs and small businesses, they require handholding. So what yeah. according to you is the most difficult thing uh, for the inventors to understand? Yeah. I am sure you must be receiving a lot of queries and for some of the queries you feel like, oh my God, it's so difficult to, to make them understand about this. So what is that <laughs> one thing <laughs> when well, it comes to IP? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the one of the big things, I think there's sort of, it's quite a lot um, because it's complicated. Right? Yeah. <laughs> IP is, is complicated, probably unnecessarily so, but it's it's pretty complex. And so anybody coming into the field of IP, if you've not got a background in it, I mean, how long does it take to train a patent attorney? It gives you an idea. It's like five years or, or so. Right? And even then, are they really competent to be doing things on their own? So you see that even somebody who devotes their entire life to it, for sort of four or five years it's there's still not the finished article so and that shows you how complicated it is so there's a lot to understand I think it would be a bit unfair of me to sort of say um, what SMEs do and don't understand but I think probably if I was to say um, one one thing to start is is breadth uh, so if you're a technology business and you're coming at IP don't just think patents okay yeah there's a lot, lot more to this than just patents. And that's a really, really big thing. Um, so, so understanding how broad um, the, the topic is and trying to make sure that you get some, um, some understanding of that and then you're able to protect it across that, across that breadth. Yeah. Um, so let's look at all things. And, you know, trade secrets are, are pretty hot uh, right now. Um, and that for good reason, um, because I think we've relied on patents for too long. And for many, many businesses, they simply don't work. Software businesses being an example. Um, and for other businesses, they don't make sense. You know, getting a patent has a downside um, in that you have to publish yeah. what you do. <laughs> um, and so for some businesses, that doesn't make sense. For some businesses, it should be a mix. Um, so yeah, I would definitely say that get get an understanding of, of the breadth of what you actually own. And the other thing as well is the importance of 
extracting intellectual property <laughs> exists in people's heads, in people's brains, right? <laughs> and it's no, but it's no use to anybody there. That's that's like, I mean, what it is, it's of use to the person who's got it in their brain. Um, and whilst they're working for you, maybe it's of use to your business as well. But you know, you've got to pull it, if you want to really realize the value in your IP, you've got to pull it out of people's heads, get it down, <laughs> recorded somewhere where you can manage it and you can do something with it, right? Uh, so those are, those are the two things I think I would say. You know why I'm laughing? Because I have had clients who would not like, let me record the discussion on <laughs> take down <laughs> notes because they'll be like, oh my God, we can't let you do that. I said, we need to do drafting. How would we do that if we don't know the technology? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, so you've got to do that. You've got to do that. Um, and it's even more important with things like know-how. Yeah. Right? Because that is... Um, that's really how your business runs. That's mm -hmm. that's the stuff that if your if your eventual goal is to get an exit or to get yeah. investment, then that's the that can really be the gold. I mean, there was there was a there's a very good friend of mine who told me quite recently about a story when he exited um, a technology business and they had patents. Um, but the, the acquirer wasn't interested in those. It was the know-how and the fact that they documented the know-how and that allowed that, the person acquiring the business, it allowed them to understand how the business worked. And also it allows you just to sort of disassociate it from the people. So it makes the business a realizable thing rather than something that just exists because of the people. So you can pick that know-how up and in effect, you can put it down somewhere else with a different set of people, teach them it, and then you can run the business of, over there. So it makes it actually, I think anyway, it makes the value more easily understood by investors and people wanting to buy the business. So Stephen, as we are discussing this exit terms and uh, you know negotiations, what do you yeah. think, uh, like as... Uh, when it comes to IP asset, what hinders and helps during a negotiation? If you can throw some light on that aspect as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, IP is only one part of yeah. a negotiation like that. And some, depending on the business, depending on who the investor is, on who the sort of, you know, if anybody's looking to buy the business, who they are, it could be a small part. Um, but ultimately, you can wrap it all up, I think, into cre credibility and risk there. I'm not an investor, but my understanding of what um, investors are interested in and what I would be interested in if I was sort of parting with large sums of my money would be I would want to understand that the person I was investing in was yeah. credible and that my money was not going into somewhere where there was a high risk that it would just disappear. So I think where IP plays a role in that is in trying, it can, for a technology business in particular, it can really help to de-risk that investment. And it's one of those areas where not many um, businesses are really sort of 100% belt and braces, sort of, you know, got it all nailed down. And so it can really improve your credibility. And the effect of being very credible on IP then sort of expands out into the rest of um, your offering. So I think where I would say it can go wrong is if the IP is not there, then that's an additional risk for yeah. an investor. And that means that they're going to chip away at your valuation, right? So they're going to say, this is a higher risk for me. Therefore, you're not worth as much. Therefore, I get more for my uh, investment and that's really what we try to help our clients do is maximize that part of their valuation yeah. um, by trying to prevent that um, I mean investors will always try to chip away <laughs> that's they're always going to do that but if you give them less fewer avenues to go down um, yeah. for that then you increase the chances that you're, you're going to get a higher valuation um, and it will always come down to, and you know, there's loads of factors that you can't 
you can't know different investors will find risk in different things and be more comfortable with different things but it's really about just trying to improve the overall package so stephen uh, you know just discussing a fun side and a bit controversial topic i'm sure it would be controversial for you too <laughs> the thing is in the ip world as a whole we yeah. we see so many frivolous patent applications especially the mm. provisional patent applications which we know will never get granted yeah but people file them to attract investors right yeah. so what's your take on that is it right is it wrong should people do that should should people follow that practice or they should focus on generating ip which truly holds value and would which at least would get granted because i know there are a lot of clients especially small businesses because that is your work area who think yeah. like okay we'll just file provisional applications attract investors we know that our application would never get granted but it's okay still we want to file it so what's your take on that is it the right practice wrong whatever you want to say about it yeah yeah it's definitely don't don't do it um i i don't think it's a good idea at all it might achieve a short term yeah goal but in the long term it it affects your credibility um yeah. and it's really um you know it's it's not it's not a good idea to try to pull the wool over people's eyes if that's what's happening i mean it, it's not always what's happening but if that is what's happening then it's not a good idea i think the pro- the the reason that sort of practice comes about is because many investors focus too heavily on patents yeah as as a as a proof of good ip management or as proof of a technology business protecting its ip and that's not surprising okay. um you know they they they're not ip specialists probably um yeah and so they look for an easy way to try to understand the ip position correct right um but the it's once and and i think what happens then is that that makes the business the the that's trying to attract the investment they focus on patents too yeah. and if it's a business yeah. that can't get patents very easily like a software business yeah and they start to file these frivolous things and the things that haven't really got very much mileage in them just to try and tick that box for an investor but actually when you do that what we were talking about before which is you broaden out um and i wrote a blog article about this specifically about software businesses but once you you broaden out your understanding of ip then you can have a more sensible conversation with an investor yes so a software business goes to, into an investor pitch and is asked the inevitable question do you have patents i know <laughs> and it's so disheartening to hear to because i specialize in software patents so i have these queries throughout day and night and the moment i think the software is not patentable at least i make the client aware that it is not patentable still Absolutely. they'll focus on this stuff that we want we want to file a patent application because we won't get investment unless we do it like <laughs> but there's a different answer you could give you could give the answer no uh a yes we've got a, a provisional application or no we haven't got any uh patents but you could give a different answer which is you know patents is not the best form of protection for yeah. our technology so what we do instead is you know we have all of our know-how documented we have our trade secrets with you know all of these different things that you manage we manage risk you know we understand how we can commercialize um and we have all of our contracts we educate our staff this is our ip position it's it's not about a patent and for a software business patents can can be they can still obviously you can still get software patents everybody knows that for purely software businesses it's just probably not the right i know <laughs> so it, it has become a daily job to probably educate that's why i told you it's like we have to educate yeah. people more than we have to do the work so it's like 50% yeah. of our work is about educating them but still yeah. i think in investment industry as a whole they have a specific mindset as you said that 
if if a certain person has a patent it has a lot more value than other ip which i think uh, has to break like this mindset has to uh, break yes, and it can only happen uh, from education and awareness yeah absolutely um and i think i'm surprised that it hasn't come to a head more often because people invest in businesses that have filed these you know spurious patent applications but eventually that's going to be discovered i mean yeah you know, definitely these things will not, not be granted and <laughs> you know and then you start to ask questions about well how come they told us that they were sort of getting a patent and it it just is not a good footing to yeah. start a business relationship on so my advice would be um to understand whether you can get patents whether you should get patents and think more broadly protect your um ip much more broadly so that you've got a story to tell about your ip that's yeah. what you want you want a credible story and if if the law won't allow you to get patents then there's nothing you can do about that and yeah you know, an investor shouldn't mind you saying that you know we can't get patents because the law won't allow it but this is all <laughs> the stuff that we do you know that should be okay that should be a good story um but um yeah and until like you say until the the investor community becomes better at understanding that then i don't think the um the companies that are seeking investment are going to follow suit it's it's a brave move um otherwise definitely so uh, now the question is you have been working with european patent institute and you have been a member of that and i'm sure you you must be having some suggestions for the government as well or maybe some suggestions that you think government body should know but you could never communicate yeah. with that because we yeah. all do have them <laughs> whenever yeah. we have this love and hate relationship with the government bodies so what do you think is your take on that yeah i mean in terms of patents yeah. and sort of yeah anything, th- ip patents anything do you know what i would sort of i would i wouldn't direct any comments at the at the government agencies so the patent offices i think that on the whole i think the the EPO, the epo does it does it does a good job i think the uspto it's different to epo which sometimes causes me some frustration but you know they do a good job as well and, and other patent offices around the world i think given the legislation they operate within that um pretty well i think where i would where i would want to change things is in training um patent attorney training um it's too narrow um and the patent profession as a whole has kind of it's very in, it's very inward looking it it mm-hmm. thinks that um on the whole this is not true of everybody and i'm sure lots of people will will say <laughs> will tell me that it's not true of them but it's uh, on on the whole it kind of um it thinks that ip and patents are, are on a on a Venn diagram kind of completely overlap that yeah. patents are ip but it's not the case and there's so much about ip that patent attorneys need to know um and should know but they don't get trained on so that's one part of it the other part of it is um uh, just basics of running businesses um you know how to do um sales and marketing um is a really good one they, i mean most of the the legal sector can't even use the word sales in marketing they say business development because it seems a bit nicer and friendlier but you know how to do those things how to run an organization how to give proper client care um these things i don't think they're taught enough anyway i think that they the, the whole profession could benefit a lot from being much more rounded um in its education and cpd just doesn't do it yeah definitely so i think it's a it's it's a universal i think concern that even i think and i am uh, i i say it very very bluntly in front of everybody that we need lawyers who know business 
Yeah. And law, running a law firm is running a business. So I yeah. also wrote this on LinkedIn and people were like, oh my God, someone has said it. Someone has really said it that running a law firm is running a business. But it is actually, we have to manage teams. We have to do sales. We, call, we don't call it sales because we can't call it sales. But if we are helping clients in a certain way, yeah. we are helping them attain certain value. That is also sales. We need yeah. we need to run our homes. We need to run our organization. We need to grow yeah. our businesses as well. Then why can't we say law firms are businesses? Yeah, exactly. No, I totally <laughs> agree with you. Um, and and that is a th- that is that would be a really big shift because I think if that happened. Um, so one of the things that we took special care to do, and we've all, we've talked mainly about um, SMEs and startups, but that that is our market segment. That's our sector, um, and we we really wanted to define that quite narrowly, um, so that then we could understand exactly what it is that those people need. Okay, yeah. um, and and getting that right means that you can provide the value better right it means that if you're not talking about everybody if everybody is your client then you can't really sort of you can't provide the same product to everybody what a big corporate needs to buy is not the same as what a startup needs to buy and it's not the same as what an sme um, needs to buy and these types of things if you if you started to teach uh, patent attorneys those types of, of skills then i think it would change the client service model within many firms. And that can only be a good thing um, for clients, right? I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of clients, I think, are certainly talking to them, are frustrated because they can't find what they actually want. And so what they're faced with is lots of things that are all pretty much the same. They all say they're different, but they're all pretty much the same. And And they're not selling what clients want to buy on the whole. I mean, these are all generalizations, of course, there are exceptions within all of that, but but that's, um, and I think if we could change that and start to look at, if law firms started to look at what clients wanted to buy rather than what law firms wanted to sell, um, then I think it would be a big change for the sector. Definitely. I totally agree with you. And uh, now coming to, coming to our quick rapid fire round, answer these very quickly. And these okay. are questions from your life. So three things that you are grateful for. Three things that I'm grateful. You've asked me to, to do another sort of priority list. So I'm, I'm not very good at these things, but okay. Can I have, what about if I said uh, my family, <laughs> My family and my family. Your dogs will get hurt because of. <laughs> well, the dog's one of the family. He's one of the family, so uh, so yeah. So I think yeah. I mean, there are lots of things that I'm grateful for. My freedom to you know professionally to be able you know now I'm running my own business, but I think you know all of this all of this begun um, was begun because of my family, um, and that's. It's a big part of what I post on LinkedIn as well because it's hugely, hugely important to me. So yeah, definitely. <laughs> now, two traits or ha- habits that you think are useful for your career. For law career, you I mean it depends, I guess. I mean, if you if you want to be a, a lawyer, that's kind of I'm not doing this very well as a quickfire, am I? I'm being a bit. <laughs> that you think are useful things that are useful uh so resilience i would say uh in a law in a law career is is super super useful and i would like to throw in entrepreneurship i think have an innovative mindset you know let's get in there and break break up the old ways of doing things awesome and now one aspiration that you have for the future aspiration for the future would be to to change the way that I'm not going to be too broad. I'm going to say change the way that the legal sector uh, charges clients. I want to get rid of hourly billing. I'm stealing Jonathan Stark's mission there, but I want to get rid of hourly billing. 
Awesome. I think uh, that is one mission that all of us together can work on and change. <laughs> and I'm sure after five years or say 10 years, we'll not find uh, the hourly rates. I'm pretty sure on that because people are people all over the globe are now ready to move towards fixed price. Definitely. Just that they're not finding way. Like for us, it's easier because we are starting out with firms which have been practicing it since years. They find it very difficult to transition. Very difficult, yeah. And But there's, there's, a, there's a knock-on effect of not charging by the hour. We, at, at Matter, we will be publishing our price list. Yeah. as well and that's something that i don't th i think more transparency over price as well so if you if you've got fixed fees then there's no reason why you can't publish yeah. those and that allows clients to compare on price yeah. where they can't now it's impossible for for clients and, to compare on price it's like walking into a shop <laughs> and there's no prices on anything right um it's very very difficult then you walk into the shop down the road and there's no prices on anything in there either you know how how do you decide where what what's the right the right price? So, so uh, now to conclude, can you share some key takeaways for lawyers and legal entrepreneurs? <laughs> legal entrepreneurs. Okay, so one of the things I've found, if you're a legal entrepreneur and starting a new business my experience anyway is that um we started the business and we thought we knew exactly what we were going to do and exactly how we were going to present to to the market but actually it turns out that when you think about the things on your own when you go to the market you get feedback and they have a different idea um be able to adapt and use the first bit of time that you have to listen and respond to what your clients are telling you, right? And it will change the way that you do things and it will change the way that you package up and sell your services, but that's okay. Spend that, that first bit of time getting it right, refining the model. Um, at the heart of it, we always had a really, really good idea how we package that up and how we sell it to our clients is the bit that's been been refined uh, i think the second thing for legal entrepreneurs is just do it this this sector is crying out for innovation it is absolutely crying out for it and there's so much going on when you sort of as soon as you get into that there's actually quite a good community right of people that want to innovate and want to do things differently you know you're a good example of that um and so just take the first step just uh, go for it. It's actually not as hard as you think. You know? I mean, yeah. hard work yeah. is good fun. It's like when you jump into water, you learn swimming <laughs> somehow. Yeah, that's right. yeah. Well, either you do or you don't. But the... yeah. You don't have an option. <laughs> no, no, no that's right. Yeah, that's right. So, um, so, yeah, I would say, you know, it's actually, there's, there's, if, you, if you get the right, product to market fit then okay. there's work out there for you to get and have a bit of faith in yourself and you know when, before I started um, Matter I had a conversation with a very good friend of mine who's in a completely different business he's actually in retail um, but um, he sort of said you know I, I said to him oh you know I, I'd love to do it but I feel a bit scared I, I don't it feels a bit risky and so he said well okay then let's talk about the risk yeah he said let's imagine what's the worst case scenario that you know you start this new business and it goes what, what happens and I said well you know I don't win any clients and I don't get any money and I have to stop it and he said well if you did that what would you do I said well I'd probably uh, go and get a job <laughs> he said what would that job look like and I said well exactly like the one that I've got now right and he said well where's the risk in that he said, there's, there's no risk. The worst case scenario is that you end up where you started. Um, and so why don't you just go for it? And, and actually, that was the, that was the conversation that, that did it for me. And exactly, I think this is the same case for me because I was doing job for about three years before starting my law firm. And yep. uh, there were chills in my body that, okay, I'm going to quit my job and start my law firm. But then I thought about the exact same thing. Like, what is the worst case scenario? I can always come back to this job. My bo boss and I had a very good terms in terms of he liked yeah. my work. I liked the firm. So I knew I could 
एनी टाइम लाइक इवन नाउ इफ आई फील आई वॉन्ट टू गो बैक टू द ऑर्गेनाइजेशन आई नो पीपल आर वेटिंग देयर फॉर मी टू कम बैक बट थिंग इज दट देर वॉज नो रिस्क बट द रिस्क इज ऑलवेज हियर इन आर माइंड you know there's a really good book that i'm reading at the minute called skin in the game uh, by mm-hmm. nasim taleb um and in that he, he talks about having to sort of you've got to pin your colors to the mast you've got to be out there and you've got to say this is what i believe and this is how i'm going to do things and there's a risk there's a social risk in that failing um and that's the bit that i think is more terrifying than the actual right. financial um part of it you know looking <laughs> foolish looking silly um, yeah, but that's not real you know just go for it similarly uh, there was a concept i read about it's called imaginary fear that things haven't uh, had yeah, happened yeah, yet and it's like we are imagining in our head yeah. and it's all about imaginary fear exactly, yeah. it's yeah. a future fear that might it's a, it's yeah. a fear of a future thing that might never happen that's right yeah exactly and i think that's what holds um lots of people back um but there's loads of space to to do it and I, and i tell you i actually i did a poll on this on linkedin recently and it was a mixed mixed resp- set of responses but i've never met anybody that didn't that has has left and started something on their own that then said i really wish i hadn't done that you know even if it goes wrong yeah the, the things that you learn the people that you meet um and you will get some clients it might you know if it goes wrong then it might not be enough to sustain you i, I don't think that's that's very common um but even then you'll still you see so you'll have some clients that you can take to another firm you'll have met loads of people you'll have learned loads of things you know the upsides much outweigh the downs so yes so as stephen said just do it and it's all about <laughs> the game you play and be happy take it like the day yeah. and play the game so thank exactly. you so much stephen for being on the show i'm sure the oh, audience yeah. will love this podcast okay thank you very much thank you for asking me hey there thank you for attending today's session if you enjoyed today's session do follow our channel and consider sharing it with a friend my name is prigya arora daughter of inspiring parents alumna of iit khadakpur engineer turned lawyer and entrepreneur and now founder of pa legal where we help creators and innovators protect their intellectual property thank you